0: I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I'll be reading for our text this morning, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 17. It's a large chunk of Scripture. This is God's Word, and we uh, do well to pay attention to what God has revealed to us in His Word. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, To the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff, and he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. This is God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is profitable to us. And I ask you now that you would use it in our lives to conform us to the image of your Son, and to equip us for all the good works that you have planned out for us to walk in, in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is such a wonderful passage of Scripture. It has uh, both humanity to it, as we see Moses, and obviously the deity of God on display. And perhaps as you read through a passage like this, you find Moses a very relatable man someone that you can relate to someone that if you were in his shoes you could say yeah I could see doing that as well that's one of the wonderful things about god's word is it speaks to us realizing who we are and what we're like as humans we are but dust reading a passage like this makes us perhaps ask us the question have you ever felt inadequate for a task an assignment that you've been given a role that you have to fulfill, a circumstance that has been thrust upon you that you weren't expecting. Some of the roles that we have to live in are certainly daunting to us. The role of a father or a mother or a grandparent or being single or being married or your job are all daunting tasks when you take an appropriate time to think about them, and you can feel inadequate for them. Or the task of evangelism, trying to go and share the gospel with someone can make you feel overwhelmed and insufficient for what you are called to do, or a particular ministry that you take on, or a new responsibility at home or at work, all seem to be like you're in over your head, and you're inadequate for whatever new assignment has come upon you. Or it could just be a circumstance that comes into your life, a scenario that you were not expecting. It could be a grievous one. It could be a health circumstance or a church difficulty or a job problem or a global crisis, something that makes you feel woefully inadequate to handle. Why do you feel inadequate? Why does this come upon us? Maybe a few reasons why you feel inadequate for certain scenarios in your life. It could be because you look at the scenario, and then you look off the top of your head, maybe you can think of ten other people who would be more fit for that than you are. You can easily come up with other people who can speak better than you, do things better than you, or more competent than you, make things better, more skills than you, and you think, they would be adequate, and compared to them, I am inadequate could be that you've tried this thing before and you have failed. You think, I've already proven myself to be a failure in this. I have no business to try to do this again. And so your inadequacy comes to the surface yet again. Or maybe you think, I just don't know how to do this. I I am ignorant about this. I lack the experience. I lack the resources. I lack the energy. I lack the desire. I lack the time. I am woefully inadequate. What do you do when you have to face something like this where you feel your inadequacy? Well, some of us, we turn tail and we run. We get out of there. Well, I can't do this, so I'm not going to do it. And you're gone. Or maybe you try to manipulate the situation so that it more fits what's suited to you, and so you kind of change the job, change the task, change the circumstance, change the role, so you are able to fulfill it, but on your terms. Do you ever feel inadequate? It comes upon all of us. Even when you look at someone who thinks like they've got it all together, they don't. We're all inadequate. Take courage from this passage. Take courage from the illustration here of Moses. Because this passage shows us that God knows our inadequacies, and He is more than able to overcome them and to compensate them for the very responsibilities and circumstances that He thrusts us into. We take heart because the reality of our inadequacies is not unique to you. You are not the only one who experiences being inadequate. Moses, one of the most important people in the scriptures, speaks out of the pages of this text to show us his inadequacy and his reluctance to dive in to what God has given him to do. I need to clarify for a moment, because as we try to pick this text apart and apply it to our own lives, we have to make a a clear stipulation that none of us are Moses. Uh, We are not summoned by God to lead a group of people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And if you, for some reason, think that you have that responsibility upon your life, uh, we need to have a chat. And yet you can't miss the real humanity of this passage and the principles that undergird this that here's a man who is being summoned by God to a task that is bigger than him and he feels woefully inadequate for accomplishing it and he tries to get out of doing it. And so as we see the humanity of it, we also see the provision of God in it and we learn about the great provision of our God to compensate. And to provide for us in the midst of our inadequacies. And so we take heart from a passage like this because we see how the delivering God uses inadequate people to accomplish His perfect purposes. However God might have a calling in your life, whatever He might have you to do, He is prepared to lead you through that. As we go through this text, the whole of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 17, is really a unit. So even though we've already been through many of the verses of chapter 3, we'll retrace our steps just briefly to make sure that we can see this whole unit. Because the context of this is Moses being spoken to by God from the burning bush as Moses is being summoned to go to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. It's obviously a task that no one would feel sufficient for, and Moses makes that very clear. He hardly considers himself up to the task that God is assigning him. And so this commences this really fascinating dialogue between this inadequate man and this perfect God. And Moses raises objections to God for what he's being called to do. And with each objection Moses raises, there are five of them, God gives a response, five responses. So we'll look at the five objections and the five responses that God gives. So the first objection that Moses gives to this calling that God's put on his life is found in verse 11, and you could summarize it this way. Here's the objection. I have no business in this task. After God tells Moses that Moses will be the one who's going to go to Egypt, Moses says in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It seems to be a question of inadequacy on Moses' part. And Moses is effectively stating that he has no business doing this job that. Yahweh is assigning to him. It's completely understandable, by the way. You'd almost be wary of the one who says, oh, I'm so glad you chose me for that. And you didn't pick any of those other losers to do this because they would just mess it up, but I've got this one. You'd have delusions of grandeur if you think that way. And so Moses' response to our mind is completely reasonable. This inadequacy that he feels. And yet you see with his response, who am I? There's this disconnect from a trusting attitude that he has to have in the God who is commissioning him for this task. And that's the problem, the real crux of the issue between our inadequacies and God's call is, are we going to trust God that he will provide us to do the very thing that he has called us to do? And the reality is that our lives as followers of Jesus Christ are always filled with things that are grander and bigger than we should feel sufficient to accomplish. Paul, when he's speaking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, is describing what believers are in this world. And he describes us as the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It doesn't get much bigger than that as far as the responsibility that we have in our life to be the aroma to the world either from death to death or from life to life. And Paul wraps up that statement with this question, who is sufficient for these things? Even Paul acknowledges that in ourselves, there is a complete inadequacy to fulfill the very task that God has called us to. And if we broaden this out into the other responsibilities that God has given to each of us, there should be a feeling of inadequacy. Who is sufficient to love their wife as Christ loved the church? Who is sufficient to submit to their husband as the church does to Christ? Who is sufficient to raise their kids in the Lord? Who is sufficient to live a life of singleness in purity and contentment, who is sufficient to represent Christ well to their unbelieving family, friends, co workers, and neighbors? Who is sufficient to resist the temptations of the world, our flesh, and the deceptions of our enemy Satan? Who is sufficient to use their time and resources with intentionality and devotion to the Lord? Who is sufficient to forgive those? Who have wronged you? Who is sufficient to love their enemies? And you could go on with every responsibility the Lord has laid at your feet. Who is sufficient for this? And so as Moses asks the question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? We could almost replace that with who am I that I should fill in the blank with any Christian responsibility God has given to you? Who am I? Have you ever read Scripture and you come to a passage and you think, "The Lord wants me to do what?" If you haven't read Scripture that way, with a sobering reality of what God expects of you, then I would invite you to look closer at what God's word says and what God expects of you, because there are times where it just surmounts our capacities. Who am I that I should? Well, God has a response to this. His response is in verse 12, but I will be with you. And because we've covered that ground before, I won't go into detail with it, but brothers and sisters, that's enough of a response. Enough of the response to our inadequacies is that God will be with us. And that's enough. And really the rest of God's responses is a fleshing out of that reality. The God who will be with you is this kind of a God and that's what comes out in the next responses God gives. Moses' second objection comes in verse 13 and it could be summarized as I don't know enough. I don't know enough. Moses then asks God what should I say is the name of the God who's sending me? Moses is looking for some more information. He wants to know the name of God and tell the people what his name is. And in a sense, it's a legitimate objection because this is something that he should know as he goes to deliver the people of God. What is the name of this God? But at its core, this desire for more information is something that we often feel in our own responsibilities. Probably the prime example is something like evangelism. We, we go out to talk to somebody or with the expectation that we ought to do it. We think, well, what if they ask me this question? I don't know the answer. What if they say this to me? I don't know how to respond. What if they bring up this argument? I don't know what the solution is to that. And you just kind of churn yourself into this uh, kind of fervor of, I'm not going to do it because I don't have every answer that has ever been brought up to any objection of Christianity. Well, ignorance is not necessarily a legitimate reason not to do what God has called you to do. Now, there's a certain level that you should know, you should be able to understand and articulate the gospel. That's for sure. But we don't need to know everything. God's response to this is to tell Moses his name, which we've spent the last couple of weeks thinking about, and his name is I am who I am, or shortened as I am, or Yahweh, And this name is to encourage both Moses and the Israelites that the God who is sending Moses and leading the Israelites out is a God who will be there for them. He is who he is, and therefore he will do what he says he will do. But the response of God in this case goes further. He doesn't just provide his name, because if you look beginning in verse 16, the Lord begins to provide an enormous amount of detail to Moses about what it's going to be like as he goes into Egypt. He now tells Moses, go and gather the elders and tell them that I've seen their affliction and then go to Pharaoh with the elders and tell them that you want to go out and worship me and then go, uh, that won't work, and I'll stretch out my hand and lead the people out of Israel. The Lord goes on to provide Moses with a, really an astonishing amount of detail about what is going to happen as he goes. He provides Moses with an answer to his question, an answer to his inadequacy. Here's what you need to know. Moses is first to go to the elders, it says in verse 16, and gather them and tell them that the Lord has appeared to Moses and that the Lord has observed the affliction That's happened in Egypt, and that the Lord is working now, promising, it says in verse 17 of chapter 3, to bring them up out of that affliction into the land of the Canaanites. That's worth just a, a brief aside. The task that God is giving to Moses is not some menial task, not something insignificant. It's not something cruel or mean. It's a good task. It's a task that a delivering God would give. It is a task to deliver people out of this affliction and into a good land. The tasks that God gives us, though they may be hard, difficult, and trying, are good. They are good tasks, good responsibilities. And even the circumstances that are unsavory to us, God intends that for good, our good, and the good of others. And that's what Moses has been assigned, this great task of deliverance. What a privilege Moses has to be a part of God's grand plan of redemption. Well, as the elders are to, in verse 18, listen to his voice, or God says that they will listen to your voice, then they are to go to Pharaoh. And they are to go and request of Pharaoh that they can make a journey into the wilderness to worship God. And that brings to us a, Uh, a substantial point that the whole exodus, the whole deliverance is really about worship. It's that the people of Israel might be freed from the oppressive mandates of Pharaoh in order to go and be linked to God and become servants of God and worship him. Who are they going to serve, Pharaoh or God? Well, God is calling them to come and worship him. But the Lord knows that Pharaoh is stubborn and will not let them go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Well, guess what God has? He has a mighty hand. And so as Moses faces this difficult trial of trying to go to a world leader, you think of the audacity of that and asking the least leader of the world, let the Israelites, let your slaves go out and worship this God. And Moses knows he's going to be stubborn, but he also should know that he has a God on his side who has a mighty hand, and he will compel Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Not only that, but God's power is so complete, so sufficient, that as Israel goes out of Egypt, God tells Moses, to have the Egypt women ask their neighbors for costly things, and in effect, they will plunder the Egyptians. Now, this is a common thing for warring peoples to do. As they go and overtake a people, they would plunder them. They would take all of their valuable things, but usually that's done by the soldiers, by those who are the warriors of that group of people. In this case, God shows a sense of irony and humor in that he's going to have the women of Israel plunder the Egyptians. Remember what Pharaoh said through chapter 1 as he sought to kill the Hebrew boys? He said, let the women live. And with God's sense of humor, who's going to plunder the Egyptians? Well, it's going to be the Israelite women. This is the God who will go with Moses into Egypt and equip him for all that he has to do. So Moses feels ignorant. He doesn't feel equipped for what he has to do, but God provides him all that he's going to need. So God has a response to Moses' second objection. The third objection that Moses has is found in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses says, But behold, They will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And you could summarize this objection as, I won't be effective. I won't be effective. The next fear of Moses is that the people won't accept him. And this is not without warrant. Moses, 40 years prior, when he was in Egypt had tried to intervene for the sake of the Hebrews. Do you recall what happened? He struck down an Egyptian and the next day he went out to break up a quarrel between the Israelite men and they said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? And they effectively rejected him. For 40 years, Moses has now left the land of his upbringing, of Egypt. He's been in the wilderness of Midian. He is now shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And it seems as though that insult has stuck with him for 40 years. Because as he contemplates going back to them, he thinks, they will not believe me. They will not listen to me. They will think the Lord did not appear to you. You can hear the the motive behind moses in this even though god just said in verse 18 of chapter 3 they will listen to your voice moses thinks i won't be effective and again not without human warrant we might think that way often we may have tried things before and it just didn't work out how we thought it should do we thought we followed god's plan and it didn't wasn't effective and so we think, well why bother again? Why should we do this? I'm not the guy. If I go to them and I share the gospel with them, they're not going to believe it. If I try to parent God's way, that's too hard, it's not going to work. If I do my job the righteous way that nobody else does it that way, I won't be effective. When God responds to him, he doesn't treat Moses as though he's crazy. Responds to him as he has with the other two objections. He gives him a reasonable response, though it wouldn't appear reasonable to Moses at first. Moses has just said, They're not going to listen to me. And then do you notice what God says next? Here's God's response What is that in your hand? And you can put yourself in Moses' shoes, and you're thinking, God is asking me to go and deliver the Egyptians or the Israelites, out of Egypt. And I tell them that they're not going to listen to me. They didn't listen to me 40 years ago. They're not going to listen to me now. And God's asking me, what's in my hand? It's a shepherd's crook. It's a staff. What does that have to do with anything? And then God said, throw it on the ground. And again, you can just, if you put yourself in Moses' shoes, it's not hard to imagine that this would be a ludicrous instruction what is up? What's going on here? Well, he throws it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses in 4-4, four, four, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And God explains in verse 5 why he has done this. That they may believe that the Lord, the God, of their fathers the god of Abraham the god of Isaac and the god of Jacob has appeared to you God mercifully gives Moses this sign that he can do in the presence of his of the Israelites to prove that God has appeared to him What a gracious act of God But there's more to it than just providing this kind of ooh and ah moment that the Israelites can see. Just some sort of miracle that can kind of get them over to his side. It's more than that. This is a sign that has significance. God doesn't just do random things. And so we take a moment and think about what God has just done. He takes this ordinary staff. Just any shepherd would have a staff like this. And he has it turn into this serpent. the staff that would have had Moses looking at it and thinking, what was this going to do to convince people that God has sent me to you becomes the very tool that God will use to convince them. He takes something ordinary and turns it into something extraordinary. Everyday stuff God uses. This staff has a prominent place in the rest of Exodus. In chapter 4, verse 17, before Moses sets out, the first thing, or last thing God says is, take in your hand this staff with which you will do the signs. And later on in Exodus, this staff becomes called the staff of God. And so God has taken this ordinary thing to so you do something extraordinary through it. And you can think how convincing this might be personally to Moses that God takes something ordinary and uses it for His purposes. Francis Schaeffer comments about this event, and he says, Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, We are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. Not only that, but Moses had to address this fear because as he sees this thing turn into a snake, now he's told by God, Grab that snake by the tail. If you know anything about picking up snakes, the tail is not the prime spot by which to pick up a snake. Uh, It's probably one of the more dangerous areas to pick it up because it leaves it free to bite you. And yet Moses is instructed by God, go and take it by the tail. And as God obeys Moses in this dangerous undertaking, or as Moses obeys God in this dangerous undertaking, Moses sees the power of God at work for that dangerous serpent turns into nothing but a staff of wood. God gives two more signs to Moses to encourage him. His leprous hand, which Moses is instructed to put his hand next to his skin and his bosom and to his chest and then pull it out and he sees that it's turned leprous. That would be a sobering sight. That would strike fear into your heart that all of a sudden your hand is turned white like snow with leprosy or with some skin disease which would have put you to be an outcast. And then God tells him to do it again and he pulls it out and his hand is returned to flesh. And this would teach Moses and the others that God has power to afflict and to heal. The God who is going with Moses has great power to afflict and to heal. And then the third sign that God gives Moses is that when he gets to Israel or to Egypt, he can take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground and it can turn into blood. The Nile, for the Egyptians was the life vein of that nation. That's what they defend, depended on for life. And God, in a moment, can show that he has power over the very source of life that would strengthen that nation, and he can turn it into death in a moment. So the God who has revealed himself to Moses and who is going with Moses into Egypt is the God who can take the extraordinary and do the extraordinary. The God who has the power to afflict and to heal and the God who can turn life into death. With God on his side, Moses has the upper hand against Egypt. And this should communicate powerfully to the Israelites. And dear friends, we have the same God as we go into this world that is against us. He doesn't have us do signs like turn our hands into leprous hands or turn water into blood, but it is the same God who can create light out of darkness, who can cause the dead soul to live, who works all things together for good, and he's the same God who goes with us into every situation. you think you're not going to be effective? You're not, but God will be. The fourth objection that Moses has is in verse 10 of chapter 4. And the summary of this objection would be, I can't talk so good. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Literally heavy of words and heavy of tongue. It's as though Moses has a brick in his mouth instead of a tongue. We can relate to that, can't we? So many of us have this fear of being put on the spot to say something important. Moses has to go hold court with this world power, and it's going to be primarily a battle of words, and he has a tongue like a brick. Oh, man, send somebody else. There's, there is options out there galore. There's so many other people who can speak better than I can. And Moses takes on a little bit of an adversarial tone here, even though he refers to God as Lord and Moses as servant. But notice what he says, that he's not been eloquent either in the past, that's everything before him, or even since you have been speaking to your servant. So Moses is saying, God, you had the opportunity. In these 30 minutes we've been talking, you could replace my tongue of brick with a tongue of of gold. And you haven't. And so clearly, I can't talk so good. I'm not good for this job. And that's the way that we imagine it. For the various things that God gives us to do, we expect that God should miraculously give us the patience of Job, the boldness of Daniel, the passion of Peter, the brilliance of Paul, and then we'll be good to go on this journey. But before that happens, I'm not... I'm not enough. I'm not going to do this. Not until I'm transformed. Well, God has a response for this. He asks Moses some questions. Verse 11 of chapter 4, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, as Moses objects, I can't speak very well. God's response is, Yep, I made you like that. That's a, a sobering statement for us who know our inadequacies well, who look to others and are envious of their giftings, and we think, if I just had that attribute of that person, my life would be so much easier and so much better. I'd be so much more equipped for the things God's given me to do. But God would say to you, who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seen or blind? And then he takes credit for it. Is it not I, the Lord? This poses some substantial problems for us as we think about the calamities that happen in the world, particularly to individuals who have things like birth defects, who have stammers, who have deafness, who have blindness. And we might be tempted to think it would be easier if God did not claim credit for those things. But if you boil it down in the options that are available, either God did it or God didn't do it. And if God didn't do it, who did? And when you boil down that option to who did it, really the, the option becomes, well, nobody did. And so if you struggle with some inadequacies or birth defects or maladies and you're wondering who did it and it's not God, that means nobody did it. And that means the only reason you have it is because of the random chaos of the universe collaborated together with no purpose to give you this birth defect that is aimless and purposeless. And there's no answer there. But if you accept and humble yourself before the reality that God did it, that God takes credit for it and he's not trying to apologize for it, then you have somebody that you can ask the question why and he has an answer for it. It may not be an answer that you like. may not be an answer you want to hear. It may not relieve the pain and the agony that you endure this side of glory but it will be the answer that there is a God who has a purpose and an intention for this world and it is good. He is not an evil God. And there is one that you can ask rather than just assuming nobody cares. But remember the context of this. This is the Lord speaking to Moses, a man who feels inadequate and Moses says, I can't speak, and God says, I made you that way. And yet, he's the one, God is the one who is choosing Moses for this task. As you feel the inadequacies of your life making you insufficient for the things that you have been called to do, remember, God made you that way, not to keep you from doing the things but to show that he will be the one who will bring you through the very things that he calls you to do. It's meant to be an encouragement to us. Moses has one last statement. It's not really an objection. It's more like an abdication of responsibility. In verse 13, he just says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. You get to that point where all of your objections have been rebutted by God. There's nowhere else to go. You can't think of anything else. All the questions have been answered. God will be with you. This is the kind of God he'll be. He will provide. And you've got nowhere else to go. And you ultimately just say, send someone else. I don't want to do this. Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't that always be easier if somebody else did the things that are hard in your life? To my shame, I can't count the number of times that I just wish somebody else would speak, somebody else would do that thing, someone else would go and talk to that person, someone else would lead, someone else would do this. And I forget the privilege that God grants for us to participate in his work, for he doesn't need us It's always easier if somebody else did it. That's not what God is calling us to do. God's response to this could summarize as, I've already provided end of conversation. The anger of the Lord, verse 14, was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Matthew 6, 8. Jesus instructing us how to pray says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The Lord knew about Moses' inadequacies. He knows about yours. It seems you get the understanding here that the Lord was already providing Aaron before Moses ever tried to get out of this. Aaron was Moses' uh, older brother by three years. And so God, before Moses was even born, was preparing and providing for Moses in the days to come. The Lord is patient, but he does get angered against Moses when Moses finally just blurts out that the Lord should send someone else. And yet, the Lord also provides for Moses in his inadequacies. He provides his brother Aaron to go with him. I don't see this as a plan B. I see this as something that God was always intending to do. How Moses received this news would be kind of up to him, whether by faith but it shows God's providence. Maybe you've experienced that. When you face a task that just you feel so inadequate for, but you are willing to go through with it, you find God has provided. He gets me through this. There's a great story that's uh, told about a group of explorers who are traveling into a portion of Mongolia that likely has never had any human foot set upon it before. And as the lead explorer goes into this area, again, where no human has ever been before, he finds a flower, and he calls the other explorers to gather around him, and he comments to them, look, God has already been here. As we face our life, as we face the difficulties that are in front of us, and you willingly go through it in obedience to God, doing things his way, you will find God's already been here. He's already plowed the ground. You may be familiar with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which states that those who are truly saved will endure to the end. There also may be a category that we need to consider, the perseverance of God with his saints. For we see here a faithful God enduring with an inadequate man who's resistant to his ways, but the Lord perseveres to bring Moses to the point where he will go to Egypt. Isn't the Lord kind to do that? As we close here, let me ask this question of you. Is there anything that you know the Lord has called you to do or to be that you have been running away from for fear of being inadequate in it? It may have been a decision years ago where you just decided in your heart, I'm not going to be that kind of a husband or that kind of a wife. I'm not going to be that kind of a worker. I'm not going to be that kind of an evangelist. I'm not going to be that kind of a Christian because it's just too intimidating. I just can't do it. I don't have what's in me to do that. And it may have been years that you've lived out this life and you've been running the whole time from what God has called you to be doing and to be. Will you today... Lay down your fear of your own inadequacy and trust that God is enough, that God will be with you when you follow where he wants you to go. He'll prove himself faithful and you'll find him to be adequate and sufficient. Take that step. Follow him. Even if you don't feel like you're enough, he will be. Let's pray. Father, you have no deficiencies in you. You are perfect in all of your ways, in all of your wisdom, your power. Your grace is sufficient for us. Your mercy is enough. And you've called us, Lord, to some pretty significant things in this life. And Lord, we admit to you that we are not sufficient for them. but you've proven yourself again and again to be faithful to your word, and you will provide. So Lord, help us to be people who are obedient, who go where you want us to go and do what you want us to do. Help us, Father. Help us to not run away from you. We need your grace and even this. Turn our hearts to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.